Hi. Hello. I'm Jenny Fraze. This is my podcast, Free Failing. I made this podcast as a way to showcase my own low-light reel in an attempt to counteract the obscenely curated hellscape of comparison that is social media. So I talk to my own friends about their failures or our failures and things that make us feel weird, and we try to connect about those weird things. Today's episode is less about failure per se, uh, more about a situation that took me by surprise. I think it probably takes other people by surprise as well. Today we're talking about caring for our aging parents. We're going to chat about their needs, how their personalities change over time, sometimes very quickly, and how these changes bring new challenges for us and the role reversal that comes with being in the position of making these big decisions. Join me as I talk to my friend Ellie. We have a thoughtful, very deep conversation about caring for our loved ones in their elder years and also what that means for planning for our own future. So welcome to the reverse parenting episode. The alarming rate at which my parents' needs changed totally blindsided me. And I think it's safe to say also blindsided my guest today, Dr. Ellie Onenheimer. I have known Ellie since the fifth grade, shout out Stonegate Elementary. Ellie holds a PhD in kinesiology and sports studies from the University of Tennessee and spent years as a professor at SMU and the University of Tennessee before moving to Austin in 2016. Ellie has been an accomplished yoga instructor since 2007 and recently was certified in prenatal yoga. She's an active member of her community, but most importantly, Ellie is one of the most amazing and committed moms, period. Honestly, that's she's the kind of mom every kid should be lucky enough to have. Ellie lives with her husband and three wonderful littles in Austin, Texas. Ellie, thanks for talking to me today. Welcome of to course. Free Failing. Thank you for having me. That was a lovely intro. Very humbling. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well deserved. How are you today? Happy and tired. Yeah. <laughs> My life story. So obviously we talk every day. We're very good friends. We've been friends for a million years. We know each other's ins and outs. And, you know, over the last few years, saw each other go through some, some stuff, mm-hmm. some stuff with our parents, right? Specifically with my dad and both your parents. So I guess we're just going to kind of start talking about how you felt challenged or I guess to play on my word, kind of blindsided by the situation that you maybe found yourself in a little earlier in your life than you expected. And I think that says it. I don't think that I was ever under the assumption that I wouldn't be caring for my parents in some form or fashion. I just didn't think it would be happening this soon. And when I have spoken to my yoga students that are about my parents' age, they said, yeah, you're kind of on the young end for experiencing and going through some of the things you're going through. I saw my mom and her role with her mother change and my mother-in-law's role with her parents change, but they were probably Mm. in their 60s when it happened. So for it to happen to me in my 30s with my mom, I'll give context in a minute, I think blindsided is the word. So- With reference to my mom, 
she started having Parkinson's type symptoms, I want to say in 2010, give or take, but she wasn't responding to Parkinson's medication. The doctors gave her an updated diagnosis in probably 2012, or maybe it was 2014, of multiple system atrophy. I'll probably refer to it generically as MSA. My sister, in a very non-medical way, my sister would explain it as a super Parkinson's. So you have all the Parkinson's symptoms, but the patient doesn't respond to Parkinson's medication. And it accelerates where we can and know people that live with Parkinson's for many, many years and their symptoms are controlled. This wasn't the case for my mom. So it's a terminal diagnosis and the mm-hmm. average patient with MSA post-diagnosis lives for about five years. So we knew that what was coming, basically. And, and that's what I mean by like, I wasn't expecting to be changing my kids' diapers the same time and in the same day and in the same hour that I was changing my mother's. Right. And that's how... I would say, and my dad um, and my parents are still married or were still married. My mom passed away in 2019. So he was there too. And I th- would say he was kind of like the manager of her care, but he wasn't doing a lot of the care as time went on. And my mom wasn't really comfortable with him caring for that her in sense. certain intimate ways. That makes sense. Anyway. Oh, that makes so much um, sense. So that's the part that was blindsiding that I just thought we had more time with her and I thought the decline wouldn't be as fast. And I thought that the decline would be a lot later in life. Do you know, but ballpark, you don't have to do the exact math, how old your parents were in 2012? Like when that diagnosed kind of, they were in their (laughs) early sixties because basically so wildly young. Yeah, kind of like my mom definitely retired, probably. It was kind of like a, I don't want to say a forced retirement, but her health was declining, her mobility was declining. So she retired, I think, when she was 64 and my dad was 65. I see. So I think they thought their retirement would also look different, but it wasn't. It was basically. I'm sure. And caring for my mom. So you're the oldest of three. Yes. You have. A younger sister and then a younger brother, a youngest Mm -hmm. brother. So did you find yourself just naturally sort of taking on? I know you said your dad was like the actual manager because obviously he lived there. You didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, you didn't live there full time or anything like that. So did you sort of find yourself also like managing a lot of the care as the like older sibling role? Interestingly, because of birth order, we tend to fall into some of those patterns. Psychologists have seen that, you know, over time that the oldest tends to be a little more in the caretaking role or leadership in the family. However, my sister, because I had three kids by that point, by the time she was diagnosed, right. I was dripping in children. Right. And my sister <laughs> yeah. was... A little more flexible in terms of bandwidth and work. However, she resides in New York and my parents are in in Dallas. So she would come in 
and if she was between jobs or between, because she's self-employed, because if she was between mm-hmm. contracts, she would come in for a few months, three months at a time, oh, stay at my oh. parents' house and do a lot of work, if you will. So I really think my sister and I supported each other emotionally, but in terms of like being in the thick of it, my sister should have medals for the caring she did the day to day when she was home with my parents and living there and kind of like in a lot of ways, putting her life on pause, putting her career on pause at certain points, turning down job opportunities so she could come home and take care of my mom. So I think that she was blindsided too by this role reversal so quickly, so soon in her life. And she did a lot of it and bore a lot of the caretaking. That's so great. I mean, that's terrible. And that's great. Yeah. I am just so thankful for her. I would right. have. Right. I'm sure. Just from an emotional standpoint, wouldn't have wanted to walk that journey with anybody else but her. Right. Right. And my brother would do things when we told him to. <laughs> he, was, he wasn't totally... <laughs> He wasn't sure. totally absent, but he does right. tend Just to less of a wait. self-starter. <laughs> yeah. He waits until he's asked. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. So, in the context of that seven-year span between diagnosis and her passing, how did you see your dad? Not how did he do? Because I can imagine it's a very emotional roller coaster. Some days are okay. It just depends on how it's going, but. Did you and or your siblings also find yourself having to support your dad as well and maybe were a little surprised by the care that he maybe needed? Or did that maybe not come until later? I mean, it definitely came later when he started getting burned out. I think the hard part for me looking back is, or even when it was, when he was in the thick of it, we would see him getting burned out. We would see red flags, not that any of us had done this before, but we would see his like emotional, mental, emotional struggle with it all. And we would say, we like the three siblings would say, you need more help. You need to take a break. You need to have You're not sleeping. Like, I understand that you have a caretaker for some hours during the day, but that's what not what you need. Like, you can physically help her eat or get from point A to point B, depending on where she was in her illness. She was right. still mobile for a little while in the beginning and didn't need that intimate care. She could do that herself in the first five years of post-diagnosis. But my dad wasn't sleeping because she would have to get up or need help getting up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom or whatever. And we're like, you need a caretaker at night. Like you're sleep deprived. It's like having a newborn. You're getting up every couple of hours. She's tossing her in turn. You're not sleeping. So I'm guessing this is what it's like to have adult children where you tell them what to do and they don't listen to you. (laughs) Right. That's how I exactly how I described it with my dad as well. Yeah. And they have to come to these conclusions. I can compassionately look back and say, okay, it took them a while to get there. At the time, it was enormously frustrating for Sarah and I to say, you need to do this. You need to do this. And he doesn't listen to us. 
yeah, he had to get to several different breaking points where he would ask for help or get help, whether it be through hospice or palliative care or hiring an aid for my mom. So that was probably, there's normal stuff with parents, right? Like we help them. I need my children to help me with computer stuff. Like, (laughs) you know, there's going to be stuff that I get that over time things change, but that part with my dad specifically, he just has to get there himself and it's going to continue that way. As he ages. Like currently and moving forward. Right, right. Right. I mean, we got kind of like, when is an older person, when should an older person stop driving? Usually well before they actually stop. Oh boy. Yes, I could also share some stories about that. Yes. Driving. I got lucky with my mom. I asked the doctor when she was in the room and the doctor took her keys away. Not. Oh my gosh. Yes. was the deliverer of the message. I mean, it's kind of funny. Like doctors are very stoic and they don't show a whole lot of emotion. And I asked, I said, well, what about driving? And the doctor goes like, big eyes. She's still, you're still driving. Oh no, no, please, please stop. And you know, doctors don't usually show that much emotion. That's usually not a, yeah, right. So, um, sort of the poker face is part of their gig, you know? Yeah. We say that was the day I was cut out of the will. Cause <laughs> my mom was very upset with me. Was for... she really? Oh yeah. She was pissed for yeah. a long time uh-huh. because that's, that's uh-huh. in our culture. Driving is one of your first gateways to independence. Yeah. I mean, you can go right. somewhere on your bike. You can go somewhere when you walk, but yes. when your parents, if you are in a position yes. to have a set of keys placed in your hand, there's a lot of freedom with that. It's like so, the before that happened and the after that happened yeah, from like it, a formative year standpoint. Yes, yeah. and in a, in a point of independence, we are so dependent yeah. on our cars in this country. Um, right. When you are less mobile and it is hard to walk, but you are still driving, you're getting yourself to movie theaters, to the grocery store, to go whatever, your community center, whatever your routine yeah. is at 60, 70, 80 plus years old, the keys are hard. And I imagine will be hard for me. Maybe not because we'll have self-driving cars by that point, but. Let's hope. Let's yes, hope. for the baby boomers. And yeah. Before them. Did you say you had a struggle with the keys and your dad? Well, Yes and yes. Yes and yes. Um, Just at various points. It was a recurring issue. So Mm -hmm. one of the things I was going to say that was interesting, though, about the taking the keys away and how she was like legitimately angry for an extended amount of time is one of the first times my dad was hospitalized. I'm pretty sure it was when he had COVID. So 2020. After he was hospitalized, he had to go to this rehab, like a skilled nursing facility, right? You stay for two weeks, whatever. And he kept telling me he really wanted his wallet and his keys. And I was like, dad, you can't buy anything or drive anywhere where you are, you know? And he kept telling me that's not the point. Like, I'm an adult. I'm a man. I like to have my wallet and my keys. Like, these are my things. Like, these are the things Mm -hmm. that I always have. And 
I couldn't really question him about it. But when you said the thing about the independence, it's just like those were just his security blankets. I, I sure. don't really know. But the driving thing was a pretty big disaster. So for context, my dad was super healthy, 20-year recovering alcoholic, sober for several decades. And um, in 2018, his wife passed away from an accidental overdose. And my dad found her because they were married for 20 years and lived together. And so he never recovered from that trauma ever. So he immediately started drinking. I could just see him not burning out per se, but when alcoholism addiction, that's like a whole different animal. Like I, Mm -hmm. there's no getting through to somebody who's, and, and frankly, I would share the stories like in classes or forums or whatever. And it's like a lot of people, it was pretty split 50, 50. Like I gotta be honest, Jenny, I'm not sure if I would have stayed on the wagon if I also Mm -hmm. like that is a massive trauma but yeah he drove all the time he drove Mm -hmm. all the time he would have little dings in his later years so he was really healthy he was 75 and then he passed away in 2022 at 78 and he was just like so healthy he still went running like took his dog Mm -hmm. on bike ride you know but then he just such a fast decline but yeah what I had to do in my case is I had to switch gears from and I don't know if maybe you're familiar with this tactic now currently with your dad but I had to switch gears from parent like the Mm -hmm. role reversal because I found that if I adopted that role, he would shut down and not, I wouldn't be privy to anything then. Right. Mm -hmm. But if I could flip it around to like his buddy, Hey, how's everybody down at the bar doing? How's Chuck doing? How's so-and-so do like, I started Mm -hmm. to get to know, I would listen to his stories about the regulars and right. So I started to kind of try to get into his world and then he would start to, tell me all the really scary stuff that I had mm-hmm. no business knowing, but that it's like he was living like a college kid at mm-hmm. 77 or whatever. It was terrifying. My dad wants to treat me as his buddy and I want to be his adult kid. He wants to tell me all the things. He wants to tell me all of his dating escapades and wants dating advice and wants to know why women do X, Y, Z. And <sighs> oh, dear. And oh, dear. I'm... I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, right. He, he, I don't. So we'll see. We'll see as time goes on. My dad's driving capabilities are already totally questionable. I don't know if you remember driving with my father growing up, <laughs> but like my cousin does and tells like the horror stories of being scared in the backseat of the car with my dad. And none of that has changed. So oh, some sh- point, if anything, it's just going to get worse, right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, so it's totally getting worse. Totally. I, I won't let him drive with me. I'm so controlling. Um, Is your dad still like taking care of his health in the sense that like he goes to doctor's appointments and things like that? Yes. He goes to the doctor all the time. He's got a doctor. That's for good. Oh, that's good. Body oh, that's, and, oh, that's and, wonderful. Um, That's so good. That's so, what I had working sense. against me. Yes, because your in dad my wouldn't sense. go. In my case was that my dad would not go anywhere because mm-hmm. he knew it was going to be exactly like what happened in that office with your mom. I was going to mm-hmm. start – like I did have to call his psychiatrist one time because, mm-hmm. again, he had like offered all this information. This is who my doctor is. This is who my – I am seeing this person for this. And, you know, I had to call and, hey, there's some pretty rampant alcoholism going on. I'm sure that hasn't been disclosed to you. Like, please keep that in mind when you're prescribing. And you know what? 
my dad was livid when mm-hmm. he found that out because of course he found out and I knew he would and that was a that was like that was a long time of like anger and I just kept having to say hey I don't want you to mix these things that are potentially lethal so I kept saying and I swear I bet this is a parenting term I'd rather you be alive than be mad at me right right like, yeah yeah I'd, I'd rather I keep you alive I'm more worried about keeping you alive than yeah you know like look if you're gonna be mad at me that's great I'm more concerned with you staying in one piece and in good health sure. and all that I have a lot of second guessing. I guess this is where like the failure part of the of the story comes in. Again, our stories are wildly different, but there's constantly the could I have done more thing like spiraling around. It's gotten a lot better with therapy and things like that. And I also think that that's really natural, especially for the child of an alcoholic because there isn't more that you can do, but it, I had my own grandiose plans for my dad's retirement mm-hmm. that I thought, oh my gosh, he's going to like go on a cruise and maybe he'll, I, I don't know. And he just, and I told, I did understand how severe his trauma was and really tried to get him into grief groups. And he went just to like placate me for like three meetings or whatever, but I did or do have a lot of guilt slash second guessing around some of those choices. I'm just wondering if that's something that you feel is relatable or I know they're totally different situations, but no, but I mean, there's a lot of overlap. I think that, yes, there is some, what if we had tried X, Y, Z? Did I do, especially like in the beginning, did I do enough research regarding experimental trials, different drugs, integrative or holistic approaches that could have complemented what her neurologists were doing and the rest of her team. There's also a part of me, and this is maybe just my view regarding terminal illness. There's some people that will fight tooth and nail for a longer lifespan, longevity, whether that be through going to Europe and doing certain procedures and trials over there that are not happening here. Because I think I could be wrong, but I think like Europe has a little bit more fast track for drugs and treatments than we do with the FDA. So there are, there's that line of thinking, the holistic approach bringing in different types of practices and therapies to complement Western medicine. I am more of the adage, and I didn't realize this until I went through or watched my mom go through this illness, is I get longevity. And to me, the only thing I would want for her are medications, treatments, and therapies that would enhance quality of life, not necessarily longevity, because those can be two different things. I just wanted to spend time with her. I wanted to have my focus and my bandwidth around creating memories with her and my children, because like by the time I had my third kid, she couldn't even hold him. Like I remember right. there was another gal on your podcast, Megan, her mother would hold my 
son kind of like with my mom so she could my mom could right. feed Parker oh so wow. yeah she Sweet had like image. the shaking and the tremors totally. and the lack of muscular. But just really, to still give her that experience. Some sense really of, you know, feeding yeah. her grandchild. I was much more focused on that. My cousin would like send me articles and she's like, what about this supplement? What about this? Which was helpful. But my focus or energy was just trying to really enjoy the time. Trust what her doctors were doing and trust that I just wanted to focus on being with her. So I think there's some of that. I think maybe that's just natural to be like, oh, to look back and be like, what could have we tweaked? What could have could it have been a little bit better in the beginning and longer? But with a terminal illness, yeah, I think my focus with her was just much more about being present. It sounds like you feel peaceful about that or have some acceptance maybe around right. that. Like that experience with your youngest did happen. Mm -hmm. Things like that. Right. And not that we missed a beat. We could have left some stones unturned where there were some medications. Not, not, I don't think anything would have cured her, but again, to make longevity a little more long lasting with her. Right. Because what would you have had to give up for all that research? It's like you could have spent that time as you just did with her being just being present with mm-hmm. her or you could have just completely gotten entirely spun up in the I'm going to fix it. Right. And she had, and I guess this could be where some, it's not my experience, but I could see a child, an adult child wanting their parent to fight through something, maybe a diagnosis that could be curable or I could see wanting your loved one to like fight and do all these different therapies and, and the patient or the person that's ill just saying, I just want to live until my body's done and that's right. Spend my time doing other things, not going to appointments, not going to checkups, not more testing, more blood draws, more this, more that. Yep. I just want to live. And when I go, I go. Yeah. Wow. That really hits home because that's exactly how it went. I just, I tried, I tried, I kept trying. I tried some more. I went through like all the stages of grief before my dad even passed away because mm-hmm. he was just so checked out. And my partner was like, look, this is what he wants to do. You kind of have to put yourself in their shoes and in their like, how how are they feeling in their body? How do they feel when they wake up? And how do they want to spend the rest of their days? And my dad was very religious. And he wanted to, just to put it bluntly, he wanted to hurry up and reunite with his deceased wife, you know? Uh And I think he just decided he was going to go out in the funnest, I guess, way that he knew how, which had always been before his large stint of sobriety that he, you know, stayed sober Mm -hmm. with his family was alcohol. So that just became his best friend again. And, but yeah, how is this experience or the current experience that you're having with your dad is definitely still with us aging and trying to be your buddy and asking you questions you have no interest in answering, but how does this make you feel about your own kids and you and your husband getting older? Like, do you, does it make you want to put like every possibility like in in the will? If this happens, I want this. And if this happens, I want this. And like, how do you, you know? 
I will say, I think that if you've had an aging parent or a parent pass away, it makes you question how you want to, I don't want to say how you want to go out, but right. you do but a kind one of, of two things. I feel like you do one of two things, or maybe this is just our experience with my husband and I. I want to talk about all the options and write them out. Yeah. Like I'm my dad and I say no tubes, like no breathing, like no tricks, like no, oh. like we're no tubes. We're done. We're Interesting. Done. And my husband, if you press him on it, like what are your wishes? A, he doesn't want to talk about it. He just wants to bury his head in the sand and he doesn't want to talk about anything. He doesn't want to talk about death. Everything will be fine. We'll live to be 100 years old and everything will be fine. Like, We're going to have the technology by then. I don't yeah. have to deal with this. That's a okay, Pollyanna. Sure. Okay. <laughs> or he has the other view of you throw everything in the kitchen sink to, to keep on going. Oh. And so... We have different views on kind of how yeah. we want to go out or like how we want to be cared different. for if things are terminal or not looking great. So I do think with a parent that's passed and an aging parent, it made us at least confront these decisions a lot sooner. And discussing right to life and how you want to legally what are your, your restrictions in your state? And in Texas, it's very different than in other places in the country. And my dad and I have talked about that because my mother. Do you want to elaborate on that at all? Yeah. I my don't know mother, what those are. And I don't are. know. I don't know enough about options in other states. But for example, my mother was very religious. I, I don't even know what the terms are, but right to die. I hear about right to die or her assisted I don't even want to say it. it's because it's not even called assisted suicide in dates. It's not. I don't know what it's called, but it's, yeah. Right. And Because uh, I want to use the right terminology, but I don't have it. Let's say that we were in a state or she resided in a state that would allow her to end her life on her own terms. And when she wanted to, she wouldn't go that route anyway, because it was up to God when her life was done. Right. So it right. wasn't even really I even. See. A discussion. My father does not share her religious views, and she was. Right. He would be like, "No, you take me to a state. If I have, he has said, this might offend some listeners, but he said, you know, if I have a terminal okay. diagnosis of some sort, no, I want to go to a state where I can end things compassionately and in my own way on my own terms." Oregon is one of those states, and I think Oregon. you're correct in that it is called a right to die, but, you know, yeah, I'll look it up. maybe and... Vermont. I mean, who knows? But different countries and different states deal right. with death in different ways. So I think the journey with my family has made us talk about things sooner, and it's made me make my husband <laughs> talk about things sooner and, and get a will right. and, and put, it, right. put it all in yeah. writing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. I think I would be the, go the, like the over explaining route in my will, you mm -hmm. know, like here's my playlist that I want played or whatever, you know, like here are my funeral um, arrangements. 
plants here yes, for all the here things. Are the flowers. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to do that thing where not to get dark and just stay, keep it on death. We'll wrap it up here in a second. But I do want to do uh, the it's basically where you just are re entered into the earth. I think they just wrap you, but I don't think you're in an actual and then you just naturally decompose. You decompose or like you're in a wooden. Yeah. So you're like, it's like a nature cycle. So maybe Mm -hmm. like, because obviously you're not going to stay there for long. Some hungry coyote or something is going to come. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it, but it's like cycle of life, I guess. I don't know. So that's one of my considerations. I don't really want to make anybody put my ashes in the ocean because there's just been too many. We tried to do that with my dad. It turns out it's not how it looks in the movies. It's actually very difficult and it's usually windy and messy and I'll just leave it at that. Okay, I could see that. <laughs> I could see that. It was pretty that gross. That could turn anyway. out very poorly. <laughs> I mean, it made it funny. It made a really sad moment funny, but it was also a little bit disgusting. So mm-hmm. I live off of I live off a dark humor. I'll take all of it. Yeah, I know. And we both do. And that's why... <laughs> Even during my dad's passing and your mom's passing, I know we didn't, there weren't a lot of boundaries there because we couldn't have any because it's such a relief. If you don't laugh, you'll cry. And crying's fine too, but you're going to do that anyway. Right. So you might as well have some laughter right. there too. Agree. Completely agree. All right. Well, Ellie, this has been super fun. Thank you for having me. Totally. I love talking to you. I can't wait to see you again. Hopefully I can come to Austin pretty soon. soon. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can support me by rating and following the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or the podcasting platform of your choosing. Until next time, thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Bye.